Greetings, podcast listeners, and welcome to The Last Line. My name is James Albarn. Hope you're having a wonderful week so far. Thank you very much for joining me. If you're new to the show, then please do hit subscribe on iTunes or wherever you are listening to the podcast. We're available on Stitcher, TuneIn, Podbean, CastBox, and well, that's it. And leave us a rating and review. It goes a long way to support the show. Uh, if you're feeling extra generous, then you can head over to patreon.com forward slash the last line to give me some money um, where you'll be adequately rewarded for doing so. On this week's show, I sit down with author, activist and former ecstasy kingpin, Sean Atwood. Uh, Sean's story is uh, so unbelievable. It actually spans a trilogy of autobiographies and there is just not enough time in an hour-long podcast to cover his whole story. Uh, Sean moved to Arizona as a young man and within a few years he had already become a millionaire on the stock markets and through throwing massive rave parties, Sean found himself becoming the biggest ecstasy dealer in the state of Arizona. Um, Years after giving it all up, um, Sean's mansion was raided by a SWAT team and he spent time in some of the toughest jails and prisons in Arizona. And while in jail, he smuggled out writings that were published online that exposed the terrible conditions that the prisoners were kept in under Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Since his release and returned to the UK, Sean has become a public speaker and talks to school children across the country to stop them making the same mistakes he has made. Uh, he also writes books and has a YouTube page where he answers all sorts of questions about prison. If you've got a question about prison or anything to do with the justice system in America, generally Sean's your man. In our conversation, recording on the day of the royal wedding of Harry and Meghan uh, of this year, we covered everything from life and violence in prison, corruption in the justice system, Sean's book on making a murderer's Stephen Avery, and whether I would end up as someone's prison bitch. But first, we discussed Mafia boss Sammy the Bull Gravano, who became Sean's competitor in the ecstasy dealing game in Arizona, who by all accounts is not someone you want to be enemies with. So Sammy the Bull got recognized by the Mafia when he was a child, someone had stolen his bicycle and he tracked these guys down and he just beat the crap out of them and they said he, he fought like a bull so that's how he got his name then i believe he went into the military and he joined up into the mafia because they saw his skills on the streets hmm. as a hoodlum and then when he joined the mafia you got to do this ceremony where like they take you in a basement have you seen sopranos or goodfellas yeah and then um, they got like a a, a card of a saint and they prick your finger and you put blood on it and then they they burn the card and they say if you ever betray us like um, you know a murder you know you're you're gonna burn uh, you're gonna be destroyed you know just just like that card and he was allied with john gotti right who later became known as the teflon don he was running the gambinos but prior to them running the gambinos they actually conspired and succeeded in taking out the boss of the Gambino crime family. Now, there's five Italian mafia main families and to kill a boss 
it's got to be sanctioned by the Mafia Council. So they did this without the sanctioning of the council. And if you do anything like this, <laughs> basically yeah. it's the death, to kill a boss, it's the death penalty yeah, under yeah. mafia law. But they did it anyway. They had guys in huge Russian hats and these like fur trench coats. Yeah. Um, they whacked the boss outside of his favorite restaurant, which was Sparks Steakhouse in London. And then they took over. And just because they could. Just because <laughs> they did. The, the boss, he had this house on the hill that was like a mansion, a replica of the White House. Yeah. He was strutting around in these silk pajamas and nightgowns, and he was telling Sammy the Bull and John Gotti they couldn't get involved in taking drug money, yet they believed that he was actually taking money from drug gangs. And Gotti was up to his neck in taking drug money, and he thought that the boss was about to find that out and order them to get whacked. So they felt, all right, we could kill two birds in one stone, we could save our lives, we can kill the boss and we can take over the Gambino crime family. And that's what they did. Yeah. Yeah, hardcore. So, so, but did you know any of this when they said Sammy the Bull? Was he like a name for you when well, they said it? When I sobered up and realised, you know, the magnitude of this, because I was aware of the Bull, because he'd been all over the news. Right. These guys had been in the news for years. You know, every time they tried to prosecute John Gotti... He had this brilliant lawyer and he always got him off. And that's why they called him the Teflon Don because no, no charges would ever stick. So this was, const <laughs> this was constantly in the news. And in the end, Sammy the Bull, he confessed to 19 murders and agreed to testify against Gotti. Um, and he only ended up serving like less than five years on, on the whole thing. And, and Gotti ended up getting a life sentence and getting... He died in prison, yeah. But the bull then, his family went to Hollywood. His daughter, Karen Gravano, star of Mob Wives. Right. And the bull, he was um, dealing, coordinating this ecstasy ring out of Arizona where I was. Now, the bull got arrested about a year or so before my ecstasy ring got arrested. And as he was getting arrested... There was a, a hit team in town. I think they had a bomb and they were going to blow him up. And if the feds hadn't arrested Sammy the Bull and all these people and been surveying him at this time, then the John Gotti's people would have probably killed him Right. Um, around that time. So yeah. it was Sammy the Bull's son that told you in prison that, that you were gonna, they were going to take to the desert yeah. one night. Sammy the Bull's son told me a few things in prison and one of them was... He'd been dispatched one night to kidnap me from a nightclub and take me out to the desert with an armed crew. And was he telling you this in like a friendly over breakfast, like, oh, here's a funny story? Or was it more of like a, so you watch your back? Right, so... Because that seems like a weird <laughs> dynamic. <laughs> okay, so when I first got to one prison, Sammy the Bull's son, he had press clippings of my stories that had been in the BBC News and stuff like that. Yeah. People had printed them out and mailed them into the prison. And they'd said that I was an activist who'd exposed all of these conditions in the evil Sheriff Joe Arpaio's jail. So some of the prisoners loved that because most of the prisoners hated Sheriff Joe Arpaio. So Sammy the Bull's son was giving me kudos for doing this. And I said to him, well, why don't you give me some of your stories and we could put them online? Right. And he did give me a couple of stories, but he was quite cagey as well. I, I, he gave me a couple of stories, but it was like trying to uh, squeeze 
squeeze him into doing yeah, it yeah. a little bit. So, and he did tell me some other things off the record, which he asked me never ever to put on the internet, ever ever to speak about. Right. So, you know, the other thing he told me was about him getting dispatched to, to grab me one night and take me out to the desert. <laughs> yeah. And I was thinking, you know, when I was on drugs, yeah, Mr. Cool Guy, but now hearing this, yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ, this is a scene out of Goodfellas or Casino. And I, I could have been the one. Remember with Joe Pesky's <laughs> got the guy in the trunk and the baseball bats and... I could have, that kind of scenario could have been happening. So going back to you, you say no to Sammy the Bull. I said no to his, his you people. You said no yes. to his people, yeah. and then that creates a, a, a sort of a, a riff, a feud. What I happened guess. was Sammy the Bull's people knocked the teeth out of my top salesperson. Right. I got so afraid I moved to Tucson, but I also had people on his case. I had a lady who was a striptease dancer infiltrate his organization to the point where she was getting invited to barbecues at his house <laughs> and give, providing us information right? Um, in case anything of a higher magnitude happened. Yeah, yeah. You know, we had to kind of like survey each other. So I knew where he lived. Right. Um, drove down that street, had people in the... Um, if if things got out of control, then there's you know certain things I could have tried to fight back with. With you, you got to have the information before you can fight back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you weren't. But because but you just weren't. Um, it was obviously a big enough worry that you would su- survey him and stuff. But there was no question of like a, now it's time to get out of this. It's just like it was a big enough worry. Gone. I moved to a house on a mountain in a, a guarded neighborhood right. where you couldn't even get up the street about going to an armed guard at a barrier and he would have to call the house and get approval for that person to be even let into the neighbourhood. Really? Yeah. So, yeah. what, for the whole neighbourhood? The whole neighbourhood. So, it's like, that's, that's who's, sin, normally, that's who's, back. Norm, who's normally living there? <clears throat> um, living up on those, on those uh, million-dollar houses on the mountains are people like judges, right. politicians, business owners... Um, Paul McCartney, uh, Linda McCartney, further down the mountain range from where I was at. That's where Linda McCartney died. And um, the head of the Bonanno crime family, the old school head, Bill Bonanno, who the Godfather was based on, a lot of his right. exploits, he was living up there as well in, in those mountains in, in north of Tucson. Yeah. So to everyone else, what are you, so you're just saying you're a stockbroker... To everyone else living in the neighbourhood, or does no one talk? Or right, so in that neighbourhood, you had such a large area of land around your house. Right. Um, you know, I rarely ever saw any of my neighbours. I see. Okay. Now, the real estate person who came, who got me that house, I presented myself to her as someone I'd actually flown over from the UK got ID and credit in his name and put money in his name. So I got the house in his name using the resources, money, laundered money that I'd put into his name. Right. Yeah. And that was, that was your friend or... But I would fly people out from my hometown on a free holiday in Arizona. And that's how I laundered money. I, had, um, I would open bank accounts. I would get credit in their names, credit cards, rent cars in their names, and um, buy cars in their names. Yeah. And, you know, if a car gets busted with XC in it in America and that person's in England, perfect alibi for them. And what, what, what was the police going to go after that? Yeah, yeah. 
Clever. <laughs> well, wow. thought, it, thought <laughs> well, it was clever. Thought it was clever. But then the police actually put a virus in my computer, Netbus Trojan Horse. Uh, so when I was arrested, they absolutely took all the money that put in those people's names as well. I see. Yeah. So when you were arrested, I'm guessing you lose you lose everything, basically. The justice system is a business model. Yeah. If you're wealthy and you're committing crimes, they would love to target you, to take everything. And I was daft enough to put myself in that position. So I lost everything, including my pension from when I was a stockbroker. Really? Yep. So even the money you made legally, you... Yeah. Because it's just all... If you commit a crime, you open the door to the authorities taking everything in America. And is it the same here, do you know? Or... We are slowly following the American system. We're five to ten years behind. Right. Because yeah. what I wanted to ask you about as well is, and I don't know how much you'll be able to necessarily speak to this because obviously you haven't been in prison over here. Yeah. Because what strikes me when you when you watch your videos uh, and when you r read your stories is how violent the American prisons are. Oh my goodness, yeah. Is it this? Is it like that here, or like if I got locked up tomorrow? I don't know what for. Let, yeah. Let's say I'm innocent. Am I facing the same sort of level of violence, or obviously it depends on what you do. But... All right. So I've got this uni lad video going viral right now. And people saying, this doesn't happen in prison in the UK, blah, 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 blah. Um, and I think in America, things do go to more extremes. Right. So like rapes are common in America. You've got to go to a rape class now to get taught how not to get raped, which is a complete waste of time. And um, the violence in the Arizona prisons, I think in the 1980s, there was a TV program like 60 Minutes or something. And they said that basically Arizona prison was, it was like the deadliest square foot of land in the whole of America right now was, was Florence prison, Arizona, something like that. Yeah. People getting killed, people getting beheaded with shovels and work crews, just gang rapings and all this stuff. Then came like proper like 20th century, um, 21st century prisons with like warehousing people and high tech and cameras and all that kind of stuff. But those guys, the private prisons, they want to keep the overhead down. So they've only got a couple of uh, guards watching the inmates keep the cost down. So Aryan Brotherhood prison gang has complete control over who lives and dies. Yeah. And the drugs thing, you know, most prisoners are in there for drugs. So it's the best customer base possible for the gangs. So the, the priority of the gangs is the drugs business. And there's so much money in it. They've got guards bringing it in. They've got drones bringing it in. They've got visitors bringing it in. It's, the prisons are completely flooded with drugs. Right. right. Yeah. Now, in the UK, I've spoke to the prisoners. I do talks here. They said it's the same. It's completely flooded with spice right now because spice doesn't show up in the P-test. Right. And the P-test is used as the carrot and the stick. Guards know everyone's high. If they don't like a prisoner, P-test him. Take, take away his privileges, visits, store. Um... I'm getting the feeling that it's not as deadly UK prison okay. as the US, but anything can happen in prison at any time. All it takes is for you to have the wrong cellmate, yeah, yeah. to have a psycho guard that doesn't like you, to be in there for an offence that the prisoners don't like, a KOS offence, kill on site, sex offences, crimes against women or children, and things can get very nasty very quickly. In the last year, over 100 prisoners have killed themselves in the UK prison system. Murder and suicide are at an all-time high. And we've had about five riots in the UK prison system as well. So yeah. they're, they're breaking it down here on purpose so that they then say the state system's broken. 
the solution is privatization. That's what they did in America. You got to, that's where all the money is, and that's how the politicians and corporations make their money by privatizing. Right. Yeah. So you think they're just letting it slip so yeah. that they can? Yeah, absolutely. You break you break it and create a crisis, and then you offer the solution, yeah. which you make the most money off. And it's not a solution, really. In reality, it doesn't make the prisons any better. It just... No, because in America now, you've got the private prisons paying to tighten drug laws to keep weed possession illegal. Yeah, yeah. He's the highest arrest category, one of them, in the history of criminal justice in America to fill these private prisons was weed possession. Almost a million arrests a year. Yeah, pedos, murderers, rapists, prisons were built for them. They're a minority of the prison population now because of all these millions of people in prison for low-level drug use, mostly weed possession. Average arrest I saw, black kid, Mexican kid with a little bit of weed, two to five years. And then once you're in prison, it's easy to get hooked on the harder stuff because the prison's full of... 90% of the prisoners shooting up heroin and crystal meth. Yeah. Two-thirds hepatitis C from showing dirty needles. And then when it's so violent, you're not. it's not sort of surprising when you think... You know, they're looking for an escape or... Well, the young people come in, they're terrified. They think they're going to drop the soap and they're going to get raped and they're going to get punked and turned into prison prostitutes. And some of them do. They see yeah. that happening. And they think, if, we, if I don't join the gang, I'm going to end up a prison prostitute. What choice have I got? Yeah. So then the gang tells them to go and kill someone. They add more time onto the sentence. They give them neo-Nazi tattoos, swastikas on their foreheads. They know when they get out, they're not going to get a job with a swazi on the forehead. So from both sides, the pressure's on the young people to become institutionalised. The gang knows if we institutionalise them, they're going to keep coming back to us. Yeah. The prison knows if we don't give them any rehabilitation, job skills, educations, if it's, gang, if it's drug and gang infested mayhem, they're going to come right back to us. And as soon as they come right back, $50,000 a year of taxpayers' money. So you say about how anything can happen in prison. Though. Anything can happen in prison at any time. Does that keep you on edge the whole time? Then? Is it, is Even it... to this day, I prefer to sit with my back against the wall in a restaurant. Really? Yeah. The feeling of being vulnerable and open to attack in an open environment where there's lots of people. You'd much rather be in a corner of your back to a restaurant. Because yeah. your adrenaline, your sixth sense is kicking in. So there was no point to... Obviously, you did yoga and stuff like that yeah. to try and de-stress, but yeah. there's no... It's always just... One on minute, people playing cards, watching TV, having food, and next thing, you're hearing someone's head get smashed against the toilet and someone's just screaming like they're about to die. And is, is it worse in medium or supermax? Because supermax sounds... The hardest, but I can imagine that medium actually might be. Do they, do they have more to prove? In okay, sort of... yeah, it's a good observation because the higher the custody level in prison, technically the more dangerous the prisoners, the more serious the charges. Yeah. So, for example, in supermax, you've got death row, serial killers, gang leaders, mass murderers, multiple homicide people. But in minimum security, you've got the lowest crime offences, but you've got the most people and the youngest people. Right. So you'd think there would be the most violence in Supermax, but there's not, because there's one person per cell, 
or two at the most, and they don't ever, they're never allowed out the cells. Yeah, yeah. But in minimum, you've got 200 young people in a warehouse, triple bunked, and these kids are trying to prove themselves. On drugs. On <laughs> drugs. So they call these places gladiator schools. Right. Yeah. Then you go up to medium, high, medium, etc. So you've got those different forces at work. Yeah. I mean, some of the best behaved people I ever saw in prison have been uh, convicted of murder, were doing life sentences. They accepted it and they were getting on with it and they weren't kicking off. Because well, what, what have they got to prove, I suppose? They've, exactly. They've, yeah. They're... They are going to be up for parole. They don't want a record saying they did all this crazy stuff in prison. You know, they want to get out eventually. Young people come in, you know, some of them have got mental health issues, quite a lot of them. They've been abused as kids. They've got anger problems. They've got chips on their shoulders. You know, person walks past them. What are you looking at? Nothing. You're calling me nothing. Bam, 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 bam. Just like that. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. have to fight back, don't you? You can't, you can't not fight back. If, if, you, you're, if, if you're, you're going to prison, they explain to you, if you don't know it already, that if someone hits you or calls you a punk or calls you a bitch, you must start swinging or else... Yeah. Everyone is going to attack you from your racial gang. But then you're caught in a catch-22 in a way because you have a fight and then you get into trouble and potentially more yeah. time. And yeah. So it's, you can't win. It's, you can't it's a no-win situation, but strategically the gang will allocate an area of the building for fights. Right. That the guards... It's the least observable part for the guards. So, for example, in Sheriff Joe Pyle's jail, in those pods... It was under the stairs, guard towers here, stairs here, and then there was a cell under the stairs. So the view of the of the cell under the stairs was kind of obstructed by the the the, the stairs themselves. Yeah. So that's where two people would go if they had a beef. Okay. So two people got a beef. Gangs don't want people jumping in on, on their sides because that causes a riot. Yeah. Then the whole prison gets locked down for days and it stops the drug business. So the protocol is if two people have a beef. They go in the cell under the stairs, have a fight, the beef is squashed, and you see them sometimes having a smoke and having a hug at the end of the fight. It's routine. Right, yeah. 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 So in a way, it's, it's sort of, um, it's like an honour-based system in a, in a way. It's kind of like you sort out your problems, you deal with that, and then you move on. It's and then you've got like, your honour back. Yeah. You've stood up, you've showed heart by having a fight. Even if you lose, you've showed heart, you've got your honour back. Uh, life goes on. Right. But there are some people who won't let that level lie yeah. and will come at you with a shank or wait till you're in the shower naked and do something really dirty so, or they'll bite one of your fingers off yeah, or they'll yeah. try and pluck your eyeball out. So it's not as simple as just like, let's go have a fight. No, and... no. There are people in there who will go, go to extremes, people that have got no limits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you took up yoga in, in the prison? Yeah, yoga and meditation helped me get off medication and learn to get my anxiety under control. That was an anxiety that I didn't understand that had driven me throughout my life to self-medicate with drugs. Right. And um, you, I, I saw something you said you believe in karma. Yeah. And I was just wondering, not to question your belief, anyway, yeah, yeah. but uh, just wondering how, how you believe in karma in a prison where like horrible violence is going on and the guys just sort of get away with it. How does that? Okay, so I brought my incarceration upon myself yeah. through my poor choices 
I was worth a couple of million in the stock market. Didn't even need to be doing the drugs. But I thought I was a character out of a movie yeah. and my ego was huge. So I brought all of those consequences upon myself. That was my karma. Yeah. My karma was I harmed American society. So now I'm trying to restore my karma by talking to young people in schools and colleges and I hope they won't make my mistakes. Yeah. And has that belief helped you to get through all the pains the wrong way? You know what I mean? The, you know, the... You do. You feel really guilty for letting society down, letting your family down, letting your loved ones down. It's a huge weight. And trying to restore their faith in you takes work. Yeah. You know, if I had got out and gone back to drugs and living that wild lifestyle, my parents, it would have really done them in, you know? So I feel really lousy for what I caused them. And I've tried to work diligently to restore their faith and the public's faith and balance my karma out from the harm I caused. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I saw a, you were in a, a BBC show, The Big Questions. Yeah. And you were debating the death penalty. Yeah. Um, and obviously that sort of came up about how you, because you, you've rehabilitated, you can go and, and help school children by telling them your story. Yeah. Whereas if, you know, you just got death penalty, it's like, well, you know. Yeah. Um, and I just thought there was a really nice moment where a primary school teacher... Mm-hmm. put his hand up and was like it was basically like backed you up and supported you yeah and I just thought it was a really nice moment there's not really a question there that's just like I just thought it was really, I just thought it was really nice yeah. So, yeah well I was I was for the death penalty until I went through incarceration I thought if someone kills my family in cold blood I want those people to die right but once I saw the reality of what happens they reckon about a third of these people on death row are innocent yeah my lawyers got one off death row Prosecutors, detectives have got pressure on them to solve these murder cases. Typically, they'll grab a black guy or someone with some criminal history. The governor will fry that person in the electric chair just before he's getting re-elected to show he's tough on crime to get more votes. Yeah. It's a really sick, racist, corrupt system whereby people use the most poor and vulnerable people in society for their own political and career ambitions. yeah. That guy, my lawyer, got off. The state of Arizona knew he was innocent, and they would—they suppressed the DNA. They lied about the bite mark on the victim, said it matched his teeth. They paid an expert witness fifty thousand, say it did when they knew it didn't. And even after they knew, they didn't even give him an apology. And they would rather execute an innocent person than all of their careers and their reputations unravel. So there are bigger psychopaths working in the justice system. Than the guys behind bars. Yeah. So you can't. Humans make errors, and there's corruption. And when it comes to human lives, it can't be trusted. You know, no. people find excuses to kill other people constantly, and to be lopping women's heads off in Saudi Arabia for sorcery and witchcraft. Yeah, which which the guy you were debating had no answer for yeah. at all. It was like yeah, you, you can't have one thing and not the other really. Exactly. It's, it's, it kind of, it's all lumped into one yeah. thing, isn't it? On that point, you've written a book about 
Stephen Avery. Yes. And uh, obviously, probably a lot of people have watched Making a Murderer. Yeah. Because it was like a massive sensation. Yeah. And everyone on Facebook suddenly becomes <laughs> expert lawyers. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, their Facebook statuses. Um, yeah. But I just wanted to know what your sort of take on it, because I haven't read the book. Um, but I wanted to know what your sort of take on it is. Because, okay. Um, I think that's quite interesting. In the jail, I was on remand for 26 months fighting my case. Yeah. Wouldn't cooperate with the authorities. So they were pulled out every single dirty trick in the book the prosecutor did on me. I also noticed these dirty tricks getting pulled out on other prisoners. So I started to gain knowledge of the standard devices used against people, whether they were innocent or whether they were guilty. Right. Now, I was ranting about these things for years, you know, the corruption in the system. No one was paying any attention. Prisoners lock them up, throw away the key, who gives a shit kind of thing. But when Making a Murder came out, it caused people all over the world to wake up to these things that I've been ranting about for years. And I immediately, it broke my heart watching that program, you know, because they were innocent. I deserved punishment. These guys didn't, and they were really vulnerable. One of them was a teenager that with his IQ was like 70 or 80 something. He was just. Yeah, he just wanted to go to WrestleMania. Yeah, <laughs> he wanted yeah, to go yeah. to WrestleMania. And the cops just fact fed him and got a case out of it. And I thought to myself, I need to put some videos up on YouTube because people are going to want to write to these guys and send them things. So that's what I did. That was the first thing I did to try and help them because. You can't just write to a prisoner, for example. Loads of, thousands of letters got sent back that were written to Stephen Avery because people didn't put his prison number on the envelope. Right. You can't just mail gifts into prison. Like yeah. books, for example, some prisons allow books sent through Amazon. Or some prisoners have a list, a store item list. You can send money to them and they can buy items off this list in the inmate store. Okay. So I, I put some videos up explaining these things and they went viral. I'd never been a YouTuber. Uh, my dad started my YouTube channel when I was in prison, I think. Yeah, he did. And um, it wasn't something I really focused on. And then these videos went viral and I started to get all these subscribers. And um, I just started to put up regular videos about the Stephen Avery case yeah. after, after that. So were those your first videos then? Um, we've got videos on my YouTube channel of stuff like me arriving at Heathrow Airport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there are other things on the channel, but the Stephen Avery videos were the first ones that people really started to watch over the right. family and friends and stuff. No, I had one video, uh, How to Survive US Jail or something that got about 100,000 views. Okay. That was my biggest one. Um, and then I thought, all right, I've, you know, I've put all this stuff up about him and there's this war going on on the internet with people who support him and people who think he's guilty. You know, I could take this a step further and write a book and the proceeds from that book I can donate it, some of it to go to Avery and Dassey's lawyers and the other to go to something I've set up whereby I donate books to kids in state schools and okay. prisoners. And in the last three years now, I've managed to donate 20,000 books through, through this money and, and money from my public book sales. So it was a charity project and each chapter was a method that the prosecutors and detectives used to frame these guys. Right. Yeah, so that's how the book's structured. It's got 10 methods that they used to frame Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting because um, until I sort of saw you talking about it, I was in it was in two minds after watching the the film. Yeah. Um, 
having like made films and stuff, you're very aware of how stuff gets edited. Yeah. And so you, part of you thinks this is awful. Mm-hmm. They're clearly innocent, you know. Yeah. And then the other part of my brain was like, yeah, but you know, you could make a documentary from the prosecutor side of things, of and course. you could make him look yeah like he did it. So yeah. I was kind of in two minds as to whether yeah um but from sounds like from what you say it's it's, it's pretty so it's good to, to be open-minded and to be critical yeah and not to be swayed easily so beyond watching things online i had to go off then and read all the books on the subject look yeah. at legal paperwork and the more i researched it the more i started to believe they were even more proof of innocence right and all right let's just take the first case for example right so Stephen Avery served almost 20 years for a crime that he hadn't committed yeah basically because he'd made an enemy out the sheriff now the sheriff and the prosecutor knew who'd done the crime it was a a guy they called the Sandman. he was known for attacking women on in this area so when when evidence came to light that the Sandman had done the crime the detective and the prosecutor told their own staff members, we have contacted the Sandman's probation officer and on the day that crime happened, the attempted murder and the rape on the beach, the probation officer told us the Sandman was with him on that day so he couldn't have possibly have committed this crime. They yeah. completely fabricated that to keep Stephen Avery in an innocent man in prison. That's pure evil. Yeah, yeah. So, so it's not a leap to think that when they're going to have to pay him loads of money is... That they're going to set him up again. But that's too hard a leap for some people. Yeah, some yeah. people say on the internet, oh, they can't be that corrupt anymore. Nonsense! <laughs> Corruption is part of human nature. Yeah. Does human nature change? Yeah, yeah. Does human nature does not change? <laughs> so it's... It, I mean, you only have to look at the... Uh, uh, Brendan to think Brendan there's Dassey. something going on Brendan here because how it's such a leap that he's involved you know Stephen you could get, you could you could sort of obviously there's a lot of things that don't add up but yeah. there's there's parts of it that you're like okay maybe if you piece this thing to this thing and you know it's a bit connect the dotsy yeah in a weird way but Brendan it's like how is how does that even so Brendan told the police whatever they wanted to hear with facts that were fed to him yeah so one scenario was that she was chained up uh, tortured raped stabbed all this stuff in this room which the police went with and there's not a shred of evidence that any of that Happened. There's no DNA evidence yeah. at all that any of that actually happened. There's no scratches on the bed from where she was tied up. There's no DNA to show that all this stuff happened in there. It's completely obvious that nothing happened at that crime scene. And they'd have to be amazing cleaners to to remove any. That place trace. was so filthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they found some slugs and they said, "Look, here's a bullet." Obviously, they did it. There's a bullet. There was bullets all over that scrapyard from them shooting at cars, yeah. shooting at possums. <laughs> These are like hunting, shooting folk. Oh, honestly, it is absolutely insane. So, what's the evidence against Stephen Avery? Well, her bones were in St- Stephen Avery's uh, burnt barrel. That's strong evidence until you learn 
there were bones in the yeah. Dassey Burn yeah. Barrel. There were bones in another location nearby. There's bones all over the bloody place. So obviously, if she was burned at one location, the bones would be there. She was moved. Yeah. And the bones were scattered. And the, the murderers obviously knew Stephen Avery would be such a high-profile target. It was so easy just to guy, nudge the police in that direction. So you think it was someone else murdered her and then knew that Avery would be a good yeah. target? You don't think it was... Because there's some people that think the police you know, did it and then dumped it in. Or I they think found her. And the murderer or murderers used the police. And then the police, once that was set in motion, remember earlier I described this big bureaucracy that just slowly comes sure, out yeah. and you can't stop it until it smothers you to death. Yeah. Once that bureaucracy is in motion, they, believing some of them perhaps that Stephen had done it, others... Perhaps couldn't care less whether he'd done it or not, but just wanted to nail him after everything he put the, 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 the state through. Um, they then proceeded to commit their own illegal activity to frame him because they had absolute immunity. When you have absolute immunity from your actions, prosecutors and detectives, you have no consequences for framing people. Yeah. So at the end of the day, if that's the most powerful thing to do is to frame someone, you can do it easily. Um, you're going to do it because you're not going to suffer... Any, any jail time for, for what, what you did? Yeah. Yeah. So they saved themselves not only the tens of millions that Stephen was going to get and the first check was on the governor's desk, you know, as they were snatching him, but also now they won't let them out because if they did let them out, all those illegal tactics that they used and that crime lab, which did some dirty results, all the other prisoners who'd been processed by that crime lab and by those detectives and prosecutors... They're going to file lawsuits. It would bankrupt the state of Wisconsin. We're talking now not tens of millions. We're talking billions of dollars. It would bankrupt the state of Wisconsin. So they are putting millions more of taxpayers' money now, the state, into saying that they are absolutely guilty and we should never, ever let them out. They're a threat to society. They'll, they'll never get out. Well, you well, never you know. Might, you you never might, know. But... The federal court system is separate to the state court system. Okay. They do have a chance of getting out through the federal court system. And I originally said, because people who thought this was obvious that they were innocent in the beginning said, why aren't they getting out tomorrow? I originally said on my YouTube videos, it's going to take two to five years after the premiere of Making a Murderer for these guys to get out if they are going to get out at all. Yeah. Yeah. So I, f I still think they've got a chance. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. It's, not as, it's not as bleak as... <laughs> It's political, you know. Yeah. If these guys who frame them, if the sheriff and the governor of Wisconsin, if they get booted out at their elections because they won't let Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey go free, someone might come in uh, who's, who's more amenable to doing that. It's all political. Sure. It's all financial. So the people of Wisconsin <laughs> get out and campaigning on the streets... And start showing these people that they are going to get kicked out of the next elections. Because that power at the voting booth is paramount. You know, I was putting these videos up. I wrote the book. I left it at that because they had to move on. We're doing all my other projects. But I've said everything I need to say in the book on making a murder if you want to understand why these guys are innocent. 100% innocent. And it's on Amazon Worldwide. 
were there people that weren't happy that you'd written the book? Yeah, I got invited to go on a Reddit group, Stephen Avery's Guilty Reddit group. I wasn't, I didn't quite know what I was getting into at the time. Right. And um, I got on there and I got a barrage of questions. It was a time when I had, like, had the flu as well and I wasn't like really on the ball. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not using that as an excuse, but... Um, so I got this barrage of questions and these guys could tell you which way Stephen Avery tied his shoelaces on Halloween, the night of that the crime. Um, they could tell you, you know, minutest little details from these guys' lives. Yeah. But none of that affected the bigger picture. So, because I couldn't say which way to, um, he tied his shoelaces, you know, on some of these answers. They thought I hadn't done my research and I was full of baloney. But those 10 methods that they used to frame those people, which I experienced myself, I'm not innocent, I deserve to be punished, but I saw the tricks the prosecutors pull. I saw innocent people get um, sidelined by these tricks. Those tricks are universal. They're happening all over America right now in the justice system. And I stand by my book and I thoroughly believe these guys are innocent. And those tricks, I've detailed them. Yeah. And that, you know, that's, that's the end of the story as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was told if I went to trial and lost my 20 plus charges, each one had maximum 10 years, they would stack them all up to a 200 year sentence. I saw someone get 200 years for a drug case, a guy out of Tucson, similar drug case to mine. I think he'd refused to sign a plea bargain for 15 years or 20 years or something right. like that. He went to trial, he wanted to try and get never, five years or less. He really rolled the dice, rolling yeah. the dice, it's a bad idea to roll the dice and those on. And he lost, and they gave him 200 years. But you'd never, you'd never killed anybody. <laughs> like... Okay, so the, justice, the focus of the justice system has switched over to the war on drugs in yeah. America. So if they can hand out huge sentences, they get headline news, prosecutor gets a promotion, she might be running for political office. Right. Um, it shows they're tough on crime and drugs. They're going to get more votes. There's all these other factors. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter I'm not going to live to 200. That's not the point. This helps their careers. Yeah. Yeah. So they love giving out these huge sentences. Plus, if I'm serving decades in a private prison, for example, $50,000 a year, money, every yeah. 10 years, that's half a million dollars. And Taxpayers' money to the prison. When she put 34 years on your sheet, Yeah, yeah. That was intentional, wasn't it? Because you say it's a mistake, but... It's a mistake. Yeah. They're going to say it's a mistake because they yeah. have absolute immunity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you know, because I hadn't cooperated, the prosecutor did all these dirty tricks, including charging my girlfriend with a prescription pill found in our house without a written prescription, which was classic selling, because my girlfriend was visiting me three times a week and she was my lifeline. Yeah. So a year in, they broke me down psychologically charging over this pill, she could no longer visit me. And then a f the prosecutor's final farewell was accidentally put my sentence down as 34 years on the paperwork to the state prison when it was nine and a half. Yeah, and how long did it take you to 
find out that happened? Do you know? I didn't. I didn't know. No, I got to Alhambra, which is the Arizona Department of Corrections Processing Center. Right. And then I thought I was just going to be in there for the regular amount of time and get sent to regular prison. And then all of a sudden, they're telling me your sentence is thirty something, thirty four years. I'm like, no, it's not. I've just been sentenced. Well, our paperwork, our computer system shows 34 years. Within days, you're going to Supermax. You're a security risk. You're an escape risk. You're a suicide risk. You're going to Supermax. So I then got on to my parents and to my lawyer um, to do with anything. That's, if there's a mistake made in a prison and it's not in your favour... They don't just say, oh, we made a oh, mistake. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, 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 we'll yeah, yeah, just yeah. change it now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this takes lawyers. This takes months to fix. Yeah. It took about three or four months to fix. Because if they admit they they made a mistake, yeah. surely that's like, like, is there any recourse for you in that situation? Or is no. it just, it's just like... You don't have any... The prisoners don't have any recourse. <laughs> There's a saying in prison, you've got nothing coming. All right. Which means you just don't have any recourse for anything. Yeah, yeah. If you complain to something about the guards, they say, I'll get right on that and get back to you. Yeah. You don't, they don't ever come back. Yeah, yeah. So I was lucky because I had a private lawyer, a top lawyer in Arizona, Alan Simpson, who the New Mexican Mafia had recommended to me. Oh, that's handy. And my parents, <laughs> my parents were on top of things. And the UK embassy was on top of things, some things they helped me with. So I was lucky I had these outside forces helping me, but a lot yeah. of people in prison don't have those outside forces yeah, helping yeah. them. But you know what? I'm not complaining about this stuff because the story, the conditions, the dirty tricks that were played on me, everything was taken to such an intense degree. People wouldn't be so interested in my story if I'd had a, had a, a normal yeah, yeah, yeah. experience. Yeah, sure. So I'm, I, I credit now prosecutors boss of the jail detectives for taking things to such an extreme they've helped you out <laughs> they've helped me out yeah. they've given me this this great uh, storytelling material that's and I feel really privileged that people are so interested in it to this day 10 years after my release people are still buzzing yeah. off my story videos are going viral on my YouTube channel now like, like I've never seen before I did a video what is a prison heart check and it got like I don't know like almost a million views yeah <laughs> If you're going to take lawyer recommendations, New Mexico Mafia probably quite a good way to... When I was visiting the New Mexico Mafia, it was a scary place, you know. These yeah. guys look seriously deadly. I didn't know who they were. Rocket propeller grenade launch on the TV. All these guns, Uzis, rifles, um, AKs, weighing scales, crystal slabs of crystal meth, slabs of coke. Big dudes with prison tats, shaved heads, looked like they wanted to eat me every time I went, went over there. So they said, look, if you get pulled over from here, coming out of here, you've got to exercise your right to remain silent. If they say they want to search the car, say you're in a hurry, you don't want to be searched. There's nothing they can do. Yeah. If they do search your car and they do find drugs, you say you're exercising your right to remain silent and you call this lawyer, Alan Simpson. It costs a lot of money, but you don't spend the rest of life in prison. So that's, that was, they schooled me and everything, the New Mexican Mafia. All right. Yeah. Uh, one thing I did want to ask you about was convict justice. Yeah. Um, because it's like a, it's sort of a weirdly fascinating topic, really. I think because it feels kind of odd. You know what I mean? It, yeah. Like, 
crimes. And it makes sense in a way, but there are some crimes that are, uh, yeah, obviously, as you mentioned, like kill on sight and yeah. smash on sight. And I don't really know what the, the, <laughs> the question is, really. It's just just sort of the whole idea of convict justice is really fascinating to me for some reason. On the Unilad video, people are saying, how can dudes rape other dudes in prison yet if you come to prison for raping a woman or a sex offence it's kill on sight by the prisoners yeah people can't wrap that around their heads because it's it seems like a weird contradiction but that's the way it is i can't explain it either to make it go away it's just the way it is um i asked a prisoner who was gang raped what motivates prison rape and that person told me it wasn't sex. Yeah. It's control and power and anger. Anger at the system, anger at themselves, feeling hopeless. They've got power over other people, pinning them down, raping them. Um, if someone comes to prison and the gang rape that person because they don't like that person, that person's just vulnerable. Like in Shot Caller, when the gang raped that young black prisoner showing fear and punk him out. It's like a jungle in there. It's like people are animalistic. They sense fear and they prey on it and they'll exploit you to the maximum. It's, you know, it's really degrading to the people that this happens to getting punked out. If you're punked out, you, you, you know, you're cleaning toilets, you're getting rented out by the gangs as a prostitute and stuff like that. So yeah, there are all of these contradictions. Yeah. So it's all over the world as well because the vast majority of people, except for sex offenders, and I think even some sex offenders themselves, see the wrong in what they're doing. You'd have to be an animal not to think that a person sexually abusing a child deserves some savage form of punishment. Yeah. Now, I put this to the public. I said, what do you think of convict justice on sex offenders? And they were all, yeah, kill them, you know, beat them up, shank them, whatever. The public were overwhelmingly in favour of it. And if you look around the world, some prisons, like South American prisons, sex offenders come in, they just drown them right away. Yeah. Yeah. Drowning in what? <laughs> yeah, there's like a water well. Right. Yeah, and they drown them, stuff like that. Bloody hell. Yeah, yeah. Um, or there's some water collected in some shallow area. Um, and I'm guessing they're, places not, like that. they're not interested in the nuances of your case as to whether you're innocent or not. No, no. Some of these <laughs> South American prisons, I think it was marching powder where they were drowning the prisoners. There was some area where water collected. It wouldn't be a water well because the prisoners would be drinking out of that. Well, as soon as the sex offenders came in, in marching powder, um, the prisoners are like manufacturing the coke in the prison and stuff like that. It's, 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 it's a great book, popular backpackers. So when the sex offenders came in, right away they take them to this area where the water is and they would drown them. Yeah. Bloody hell. Yeah. Um, were you ever concerned about being punked out? Oh my God, if you watch Shawshank, yeah. I can be a friend to you. <laughs> What's his name? Bugs Diamond in the shower scene. The sisters. I was thinking that was going to be me you now. The skinny guy in the, in the shower getting brutalised. But um, yeah. I had people in there with me. Who got arrested with me. Right, so they... Wild man. Yeah, yeah. He's becoming a uh, popular on my YouTube channel. He's his... doing his prison food series. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He might be going on the True Geordie as well. Oh, really? With me. And um, I had people protecting me. I had my bouncers in there with me. Right. So I never... I held on very tightly to the soap. <laughs> and even later on, you know, when I got separated from those guys, 
because you get after remand jail, there's prisons all over Arizona. I had a mafia guy protecting me called Two Tonys. Yeah. Whose book's finally going to be coming out this year. He dictated his life story to me. He'd left dead bodies from Arizona to Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> so he's top of the respect. He's not harmed, harmed any women or kids. He's old school Italian mafia. Yeah, he just killed other gang. Yeah, if yeah. you've murdered rival gangsters, you're top of the respect in the prison. I became... There's his... a weird honour to, to that though, isn't there? In a, in, a, in a sort of strange way, it's kind of like, well, he only killed other gangsters so it's kind of like you know what I mean it's kind of it's alright really in a yeah, because strange way they believe being in the mafia is like joining up for the army you are a hired person to kill or be killed Yeah. and if you don't outsmart your rival he's going to kill you before you kill him so they see, see it's killing a woman or a child they're completely innocent people that's got nothing to do with it Sure. so by signing up to be kill or, kill or be killed the people he's killing have also signed up to kill or be killed. And they accept that just like a soldier going to war accepts that. That's the way two Tonys told me he looked at it. He was okay. in the Navy and he signed up as a, as a Navy person yeah. to kill or be killed. And he, he, he viewed the mafias the same. A lot of the guys in prison are ex-soldiers. A lot of my mates were ex-Marines. Really? Yeah, come out of the wars, they don't get help mentally, yeah. get on street drugs, end up in prison. My girlfriend said to me last night that um, because we were watching your videos. Yeah. My girlfriend looked at me and she was like, "You'd be someone's bitch in prison." Oh. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, come on." Oh, you got to make alliances with the right people if yeah, you don't want to yeah. be someone's bitch. Yeah, you know, it's not easy. It's brutal. Is it a? Re is it? Is it just sort of when you? Is it like the first? Is it? Is it more of a risk when you first enter? Yeah. Um. So you can sort of. Not relax, but after a while, if you've... Two Tonys did a blog on this. I should post it as a YouTube video. The new arrivals are coming in. They're called the Fresh Fish. And the prisoners are like animals on the Serengeti, you know, yeah. looking predatorially at these youngsters coming in. Who's the animals that are lame that we can take out, that are showing weakness? The guy's shuffling in with his head down and he's looking at the floor. Or the guy who's coming in with a spring in his step, his chin up, he's got all tats all over him. Yeah. You know, the guy who's coming in, looking down, he's got something to hide. We're going to get him. Yeah, so if you go in there and present yourself correctly, yeah. and if anyone tests you right away, you throw punches, you show heart, then you should be all right, even if you lose the fight. you just got to yeah. show that you're willing to fight, willing See, to stand up for yourself. You like, I have no muscle on me at all. Like... Hey, I was in Tony's cell yeah. and this tiny Mexican-American gang member came in with glasses and he said he wanted to buy a book off me. And I said, look, this person sent me that book for free. You can have it. It was The Clash of Civilizations or something, something historical. Right. This guy was a foot shorter than you, weighed half of your weight. He was wearing glasses and he just looked like a mellow polite guy yeah. and he left the room and two Tony's because when the guy left he, he said look you, you sure you want to give me this book for free I said yeah he's like look I've got your back I'm always ready to go I've got your back and he left and two Tony's said you've made a good friend now really that's one of the deadliest motherfuckers in the Arizona <laughs> state prison system because he just doesn't give up and he's like he's just like him, him and his homeboys were in a cell they were high 
and the guards busted them and they all pulled out those shanks and they stabbed the guards into pieces. Yeah, and left them all dead. Oh. The guards tortured this guy for years and um, he like lost internal organs and everything. It's like the story was crazy. Um, yeah, yeah, but this guy was like, all the young gang, gang members looked up to him because he earned his stripes. So there you have it, Sean Atwood. My thanks to Sean for doing the show and my thanks to you, the listener, for listening with your ears and joining us this week. And do join us next time when I will be chatting to singer-songwriter Tom Williams. Uh, remember to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever uh, you listen to this show. And... If you really want to help us out, then head over to patreon.com forward slash the last line where you can donate your hard-earned money towards the show. So, until next time, I've been James Alban, and this is The Last Line.